Did you think you were God, Brandon? You don't love me. I'm just something you caught. You think I'm some kind of animal you trapped. That's right, you are. Did you ever try to keep warm on a C-54 at 15,000 feet, 20 degrees below zero? Oh, I do it all the time. It's not good to find out too much, Charlie. But we're sort of like twins, don't you see? We have to know. Oh, we have 12 vacancies. 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. Not that I mind a slight case of abduction now and then, but I have tickets for the theater this evening. And I get, well, kind of unreasonable about things like that. Well, it's a cinch. Yeah, I look up, I look down. I look up, I look down. Now, I've got a theory that you should do everything before you die. Hitchcock and horror have always gone hand in hand. His fascination with death, murder and the repressed spans across his career. From 1927's The Lodger, a film based on a serial killer, to the gothic notes of 1940's Rebecca. Elsewhere, we can find traces of the macabre in the Nietzschean theories at work in 1948's Rope, and nihilism and brutality in the creature attacks of 1963's The Birds. In this episode, I'm joined by a very special guest as we discuss all things Hitchcock and horror, from the gothic and the uncanny, to how the director uses space and knowledge to evoke suspense and fear. We also have a fun time sharing our favourite villains, top five horror moments in Hitchcock, and rating listeners' scary moments on the Hitchometer of horror. So, join us in the vast hallways of Mandalay, in the cosy and creepy parlour of the Bates Motel, and in the living room of a Manhattan apartment for a macabre buffet, as we take a dizzying, wonderful and dangerous carousel ride into the world of Hitchcock and horror. Welcome back to Talking Hitchcock. Today I am delighted to be joined for post-film drinks in my screening room with a friend from the horror community, He's a film journalist, producer and presenter, as well as being the creator and host of Evolution of Horror, a podcast exploring the history of the horror genre. Mike Munzer, welcome to Talking Hitchcock. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Um, Thank you for being here. And so we met through horror and most specifically as a result of your podcast. Mm. And I guess we've known each other in the horror world for a while. We're here to talk about Hitchcock and horror. Yeah. And and when I was reflecting in my first episode, my Hitchcock starter kit about my relationship with Hitchcock and where it first started, mm. I really realized that my love for Hitchcock and horror kind of happened in tandem. So, yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask you firstly then about your journey with Hitchcock, perhaps any early memories that you might have, your relationship with his work, and then how this might have intersected with your love of horror as well. Yeah, it's directly linked, to be honest. It's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, a lot of people would probably argue that Hitchcock only made maybe one or two, like, pure horror films, right? But (laughs) there is something... His work is all so kind of... It's, I don't know, it's kind of soaked in horror in some way or another, I feel like. But 
I discovered Hitchcock, of course, because of Psycho. Because when I was getting into horror as a kid, I used to buy books on horror. I used to read constant articles on horror. I used to watch documentaries on horror. And I would seek out all of the big, important historical horror films to watch. And I knew of this infamous movie where a woman gets stabbed to death in the shower. And that was sort of all I knew about it. So eventually, I think it was on television on the BBC late one night. And so I stayed up and watched it. Probably oh. was only about 13, 14, something like that. Um, so was that your first? And that was my first. I'd never seen yeah. any Hitchcock earlier than that. So it was only then that I became aware of this of this director called Alfred Hitchcock. And, um, and then I think in my teenage years, I saw a couple of others. I saw Out the Birds, of course, because again, <laughs> being a big horror fan. And then it wasn't until I was a film studies student at uni that I, I properly went into his back catalogue and watched everything from you know, Rope to Rebecca to Rear Window to Vertigo to everything else. I think I'd sort of heard about a lot of these films, but I hadn't watched them all until I was uh, sort of studying them. And actually studying film, uh, it's probably the sort of thing that I'd find way more interesting now than I did when I was a 19-year-old student. (laughs) I think I used to find a lot of it quite a slog, but even at the time, Hitchcock was not a slog. Like Hitchcock was the most fun stuff that I covered for my three-year degree at uni uh i think because and we'll talk about this as we go but his films are they're so smart and they're so interesting to talk about and explore and analyze and dissect but first and foremost they are rip roaring entertaining movies right they are funny they're scary they're tense they are kind of wicked and controversial at times and you know they are still to this day so much fun to watch they never feel like homework to me and that is such a such an amazing thing for such a an established you know critical darling of a director I suppose you know (laughs) critical darling (laughs) yeah and so many big hits as well I mean I just can't think of anybody who in succession can just keep knocking out these masterpieces Absolutely. I bought when I was a student, I think we all had to have the big box set, massive box set of, you know, however many of his films. And yeah, there are so many. And that even that box set only scratched the surface. And they are all, again, even at their absolute worst, his films are so watchable and fun, you know. So yeah, he is for me one of my all time favourite filmmakers. Yeah. So we're going to get into all things Hitch and Horror in a moment. But first, Mm. here's a few words from the man himself. Four people are sitting around a table talking about baseball, whatever you like. Five minutes of it, very dull. Suddenly, a bomb goes off, blows the people to smithereens. What do the audience have? Ten seconds of shock. Now, take the same scene and tell the audience there is a bomb under that table and will go off in five minutes. Well, the whole emotion of the audience is totally different because you've given them that information that in five minutes' time, that bomb will go off. Now the conversation about baseball becomes very vital because they're saying to you, don't be ridiculous. Stop talking about baseball. There's a bomb under there. You've got the audience working. Hmm. Now, the only difference is, although I've been guilty of in the picture sabotage of making this error, but I've never made it since, the bomb must never go off. <laughs> <laughs> because if you do, 
you work that audience into a state and then they'll get angry because you haven't provided them with any relief. And that's almost a must. So a foot touches the bomb, somebody looks down and says, my God, a bomb, out of the window, then it goes off, just in time. So, Mike, let's begin then with addressing a very direct question that it might be mm. impossible to answer. Does Hitchcock qualify as horror? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyone who knows me will probably know that I... I'm always quite liberal with how I would describe things as horror. Uh I recently on my own podcast just covered Home Alone. So I'm very open (laughs) to calling anything horror. However, I do really think that Hitchcock, like, I don't know, if we were going to be really, really strict, we would say that maybe a handful of his films, maybe three or four at most, are horror in the strict, pure sense of the word. But I do think that horror kind of courses through the veins of almost everything he's ever made from his kind of sweeping romances to his kind of espionage thrillers you know to his sort of mysteries they all have some kind of element of horror to them I think you know in one way or another so yeah yeah I think I think I completely agree what is defined as horror has become for me like quite a malleable term yeah because Absolutely. like what scares me as I've aged as well is totally evolved. And I know we're going to share some of our moments that in Hitchcock personally we find scary, but mm. just in doing that exercise, I realized that for me, it's a real amalgamation of those like really well-known moments that yeah. of course live in our psyches forever. But there's a lot of those like less obvious aspects of Hitchcock as well that horrifies, you know, perhaps not even things that I can really, you know, pin down. It's not Mm. a scene. It's not a moment. It's something that it's more, it's like there's something generally in the Hitchcockian universe that swirls about. It creates this like feeling of discomfort. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the time, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, he, his, his characters are often not very nice people, right? Like, I think that's the other thing is that most of the time he puts us, or at least they are not, you know, morally good people a lot of the time. He 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 has so much fun with characters that are, you know, going to commit a crime, going to commit a murder, going to, you know, rob someone, going to, you know, whatever it might be. The characters that we're often aligned with are doing something that is, that society would deem immoral in some way or bad. And so I think that even when his films are at their most fun, there is a kind of wickedness to them, right? There is a kind of, there's a mischievousness uh, about them uh, that, you know, I think does go kind of hand in hand with horror in a weird way, you know? Exactly. We we were put in those questionable spaces in terms of what the characters do, but quite often we get to those points after Hitchcock's cultivated that relationship between us and the character. So we're really in that space of ambiguity. Yeah, and, and he makes us kind of embrace the darker sides of ourselves too, of course. Like mm-hmm. he he fi- he puts us in situations that we don't necessarily want to be in as audience members, which is that we might be rooting for the murderer or we might be enjoying this kind of voyeurism and looking in on a woman undressing or whatever it might be. There are all these kind of quote-unquote taboo areas of our kind of human minds and, and the things that we don't want to admit that Hitch mm-hmm. kind of makes us revel in and enjoy as well so and and that does go hand in hand with horror right like you know 
for the most part, we wouldn't probably want to admit that we might enjoy watching somebody in pain or being killed or being tortured or whatever it might be. But yet we love horror. Right. So I think, you know, I think Hitchcock kind of directly speaks to us in that regard and kind of makes us question, why do we enjoy looking at this stuff? Why is this stuff fun and entertaining and, you know, suspenseful and whatever else? Um, And again, yeah, like in pretty much all of his work, there is that feeling, I think, you know. Yeah, so we've already talked about then that kind of top note of entertainment, mm-hmm. but then beneath that, I think if you if you want to come to Hitchcock in that way, there's those like deeper, more human questions to be mm-hmm. explored. Hitchcock's spoken about mystery and suspense and how those two things are often confused. And the first he calls an intellectual process, the second a more emotional one. And he's himself, quite rightly, the, the master of suspense title. But I wanted to ask you about what you think the differences between horror and suspense and where those like crossovers and boundaries might exist. It's really difficult. And there are so many different definitions uh, and, and different people have their own interpretations of this. And I don't think any of them are incorrect necessarily. But I think, I don't know, I feel like Hitchcock basically thinks of suspense as being the anticipation of something bad about to happen and horror is actually the bad thing happening I suppose right and I think that's what a lot of people Mm -hmm. think of a lot of people will talk about the difference between terror and horror as well where terror might be that feeling where you watch Danny ride his little bike around the Overlook Hotel and you don't quite know what's going to happen you're not watching anything bad happen on screen as such but you've got this horrible feeling that something bad is literally around the corner right and that is a kind of feeling of terror which I would equate to suspense right it's this Mm -hmm. feeling that something is about to happen um and then horror is the moment when danny does suddenly see the two little girls in the corridor and they turn to dead bodies and that's the moment when the the kind of you know the the end point to that feeling of anticipation i suppose um you could say that in hitchcock you know arbogast kind of slowly walking up the stairs of the bates house is kind of suspense or terror because we know something bad is coming. And, and then that moment when Norman Bates bursts through the door and stabs him to death is the moment of horror, I suppose. So that's kind of how I differentiate them in that suspense is kind of this prolonged anticipation, this waiting for something bad to happen. And of course, Hitch was really clever at not necessarily, um, you know, he he preferred the element of suspense to the element of surprise, right? As, mm-hmm. you know, the classic thing, I'm sure you've spoken about it before, the the kind of bomb under the table mm-hmm. um, technique, right? Where if a rope is the kind of absolute perfect example of this, right? If you know uh-huh. that if the audience knows that there is a dead body in the dining table that everyone's eating around, it makes the whole film so much more suspenseful than if we didn't know it was there and then it pops out at the end, right? And you get a moment of, you know, surprise, but nothing up until that. So suspense is that feeling of like, sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for that bad thing to happen and then horror is the moment when the bad thing happens I guess perfect and I think yeah I wanted to touch on what you've just mentioned there about how Hitchcock uses suspense through Mm. something that I I really see as a strong motif in his work is this decision to give the audience information yeah. It's what he's so good at doing. You mentioned rope. That was one of my examples. But, you know, think of that moment in Vertigo where yeah. Kim, Kim Novak as Judy turns to us and we hear a confession. It's like mm. by giving us that information, suspense is like not just now with Scotty, but with Judy and everything's yes. just amped up that that so much more. 
Yeah, I love that too. And it's still to this day something quite unusual. Like I think so many more storytellers and filmmakers would would rather give us that gotcha moment. Yeah, and, they want to preserve and, and, it. And... Yeah, hold all the information in until the last minute. But yeah, you're right. Hitchcock never really did that. He controlled what we saw and how much information we were given. And he would drip feed it in interesting ways. And sometimes we would know more than the characters. Sometimes we don't. And then sometimes we'd know as much as the characters. But he did an amazing job of, yeah, like kind of showing us just enough to make us feel that that person or that situation is in danger, right? A lot of the time. Or that somebody's about to get caught with something or whatever it might be. And that for me, I think is so much more interesting and entertaining. I, I kind of very much agree with Hitch's uh, theory about that, that I would much rather know that the bomb is under the table, right, than, than not know until it goes off. <laughs> and in thinking about some of those, I guess what we might call key ingredients of horror then, when we apply those to Hitchcock's films, where do you see those present in like the Hitchcock canon? It's like I recently wrote a, an editorial for Moving Pictures Film Club looking at Vertigo as a horror film. Mm. And I was, as obviously there's those sort of top notes of horror, but, you know, even sort of beneath that, there's the, the more subtle notes of like the uncanny and, yes. you know, you know just the, the horror of aging and things we might have lost and that we won't get back again and time and all those elements that Hitchcock throws in. So like, what do you think about those like key ingredients and where you see those in Hitchcock? work yeah i think like they are everywhere actually if you look for them in hitchcock's work vertigo is such a good example because it, it it you know on the face of it it is this strange sort of melodrama right it's this kind of weird <laughs> messed up romance i guess if you call it a romance i don't know but it's it it does have you know it's often easy to forget that there's that first act of that movie which is like Oh, you know, do you believe that someone out of the past dead can enter and take possession of a uh, take possession of a living being? This idea that maybe this woman has been possessed by a dead woman from a painting and stuff. And there is kind of gothic horror almost in the setup yeah. to that movie, isn't there? Um, you've got movies like Rebecca too, which again, Rebecca obviously in in a lot of ways is this kind of dark twisted romance or a drama but there is elements of gothic in there in its imagery and its themes rope is a movie that is extremely funny and entertaining <laughs> and you could sort of watch it with your grandma on a sunday afternoon in a lot of ways but when you actually think about some of the themes and the ideas at play in this in this movie about these 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 men who murder somebody and then invite this poor dead boy's parents to you know come over and 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 wine and dine around the corpse of their son and they don't know that he's dead in the same room like it's got some really genuinely horrific sadistic ideas uh -huh. it's almost like a film about sadism i think mm -hmm. rope so there is absolute horror in that and then there's a lot of more traditional horror in obviously psycho the birds rear window obviously there is this real feeling of danger and tension and i think of mo images in that film that feel like pure horror like the bad guy across the road you know smoking in the dark and you you know you just see his cigarette and he's looking back at them you know the moment when he bursts into the apartment at the end as well um obviously strangers on a train again one of my absolute personal favorites it's really fun and it's got some laugh out loud comedy in it but also 
you know, the moments like when the, the, the girl is being stalked at the carnival, you know, the imagery of a carnival, of a creepy fairground, of the kind of the love boat and the, the shadows and the stalking. There is something very kind of classic horror about that. Uh, Frenzy is absolutely a really disturbing horror movie about a sort of serial rapist and murderer. The Lodger, going all the way back to one of his earliest movies, you know, a kind of dark, twisted German expressionist kind of serial killer movie, right? So I just feel like you could you could almost spot horror in every single one of his films if you wanted to it is it's so present in so many of them and suddenly i feel like where we started saying oh maybe one or two right <laughs> exactly think, you know it, it, it all depends on your perspective like i like you know i make a horror podcast and i've covered several of his films on my podcast as horror i've covered Rebecca, Rear Window, ver- uh, not Vertigo, actually. Rebecca, Rear Window, Rope, Psycho. You know, I'm going to do The Birds. There are so many worth talking about and covering, you know, at, at, in a horror context, for sure. And so whether we agree then or not that Hitchcock is horror, it's impossible, mm. isn't it, like not to concede that he's had such a profound influence upon directors within the genre. You mm. know, people like Guillermo del Toro, David Lynch. So what is it do you think about Hitch's work that means that we continue to see that DNA come through in horror cinema? I think it's this balance of being incredibly smart you know, the reason why you have a whole podcast about his work is because his, and, and it's the reason why he's probably written about more than any other filmmaker by academics is that his films are incredibly rich and dense and interesting and you can you can analyse it bit by bit by bit. But again, going back to what I said at the beginning, above and beyond all that, it's it's really accessible. It's really fun. They are also popcorn movies. They were movies that audiences flocked to go and see at the movies and had a great time and they would scream and laugh and cheer and swoon and whatever else. They're star-studded. They have incredible cinematography, incredible performances, action sequences, anything you like, basically. So I think he does create this blueprint for this thing that is, he's not just the highbrow, arty-farty, art house you know only people at can will like it and no one else right <laughs> um but also he's not just i don't know michael bay or somebody who like you know people might turn their noses up at because it's kind of popcorn fare he manages to somehow do both in really really clever ways um he will engage an audience he won't talk down to an audience he will challenge us but in the right kind of way where we'll have fun, I think. And 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 he he created so many techniques as well and and kind of created so many tropes of genres like horror and thriller and mm-hmm. suspense and mystery that of course, like I think all filmmakers that make anything close to that kind of a genre must have to draw inspiration from him in some way or another, right? Yeah, like whether they're conscious of it or not. And I yeah. think yeah, what yeah. Hitchcock does is he really invites us in to his world mm. and it's a very specific it's a very Hitchcockian world and 
I think that's part of what I enjoy is like stepping into someone else's universe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way that you, in a way that in not, it's not a cold world either, you know, like even though bad things happen, it is a place, his world is a place where you feel something, you feel for these characters, you will laugh, you'll gasp, you will, you know, you'll be shocked, you'll be terrified, I think, because there is a, there. even though his movies are doing quite bad things and asking us to engage in bad behaviour, there is also this kind of emotional draw, I think, as well, you know? Mm. Yeah, they're very complex, very complex. Mm. So, in turning to what scares us in Hitchcock, there's those kind of obvious moments but then there's those flourishes of things that are more subtle which definitely seem to be the things now that are hitting me as I'm getting older and as I'm sort of going on a a a more detailed journey with Hitchcock what frightens you in Hitchcock and I guess most specifically those those less well-known aspects of his films Mm. I think it's maybe their I guess as you get older, you do start to notice more about the... There's a lot of kind of sociopathy, I suppose, on display, right? In in his movies, in his characters, in just how cold and calculated they can be. And I think you don't necessarily think much about that when you're young. Again, I'm thinking a, 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 such a perfect example of all these things we keep saying is Rope, I think, because Rope is a movie that is when I watched it as a student I thought it was awesome and fun and impressive and of course obviously you notice the long takes and you think technically it's so accomplished when I watch it now and I think about this kind of like weird theme of the kind of Nietzschean kind of ubermensch Mm -hmm. this kind of horrible privileged elitism and these men that that have absolutely no compassion for other people who they think of as beneath them. And there is something very like real and scary about that. And that's not something that you kind of see necessarily when you're younger. So I think there's something about and 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 Vertigo has this too, right? I think the more you watch Vertigo and the more you think about the character of Scotty, there is something quite disturbing about him, right? That I, I feel like sometimes might go over your head when you're young and you watch it and then the older you get you go oh no this is really disturbing this is a kind of this is a horror film in a lot of ways in terms of the way that these people treat each other and 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 you know the way that he behaves throughout the film so yeah I think it's I think for me it's like looking a little bit closer at Mm -hmm. the kind of inner workings and desires of some of the particularly the men in Hitchcock's films, um, I think is some of the stuff that is more insidious and frightening that I notice more and more the more I watch of his films. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's the it's the inner it's the inner world of a character. Yeah, exactly. Like I think the first time you watch it, you will of course be scared by somebody being stabbed with a knife or birds attacking children. But then you go, oh, actually, there's other stuff about this that is actually even more weird and disturbing the more you think about it, you know? And it's that stuff that is, yeah, like you say, a kind of internal kind of horror, I suppose, um, that is very much present in most of his films too. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think of as well of <laughs> this is this is a an, a bit of an oddity, but those like reoccurring like musical motifs that he uses in like mm. suspicion and yeah. shadow of a doubt, where something that initially seems to have quite a romantic meaning takes on a sinister quality. And you just yes. hear those little flourishes and it's oh it, it sends a chill. 
<laughs> absolutely yeah the music is is like a whole other conversation almost isn't it but yeah. the scores in his film are absolutely incredible and you're right some of the scores are genuinely unnerving for sure yeah and those themes of I think identity and belonging that I see in Rebecca mm the wrong man and that the mistaken identity like yeah. that for me is a real fear <laughs> yeah absolutely and you're right you know Rebecca is a brilliant example of a something that I've been covering a lot in the series of the podcast I'm doing at the moment which is this feeling of like not being welcome in someone else's home I suppose right of 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 that kind of awkward you know social interactions that happen in domestic spaces with you know guests or whatever that can turn really really horrific and you see it in great modern movies like The Invitation or Speak No Evil but it goes all the way back to some of these great Hitchcock movies because he he dealt with these kind of really interesting human interactions and interplays that happen in the home and Rebecca is such a good example of that yeah. I think as well the, the claustrophobia of his films and, and the, mm. the, the moments within them as well it, it creates I call it the horror of no escape. Yeah yeah absolutely like he uses a lot of aerial shots from up above as well doesn't he mm -hmm. where you you are you see these people uh boxed in by four walls and that kind of thing and there is a feeling of kind of small confined spaces again you've got this kind of almost apartment trilogy right of um <laughs> you know rope dilemma for murder and then rear window where it's people stuck in apartments with kind of murder and mayhem happening as well and almost cut off from the outside world right on their doorstep, you know? So yeah, I, I like the way he uses spaces in these movies is brilliant. And so we touched on it already, Mike, but Hitchcock work obviously contains so many notes of the Gothic. He was so interested in Edgar Allan Poe. He's mm. a Victorian. So we've got all those like fantastic fertilizations going on in his work. And I think I wanted to ask you about where do you see the presence of the Gothic in his films outside of things like Rebecca and Psycho? Yeah, because of course Rebecca and Psycho are like the big ones, aren't they? Well, when you when you, I mean, and the the, the definition of gothic is very very broad as well. It's a bit like horror, but you know, you, you could look at the gothic as being a mix of kind of mystery and horror, but also a kind of gloom as well, right? And uh, yeah, I think again, it's present through so many of his films. I think Shadow of a Doubt. There's mm -hmm. something about that movie that has an element of gothic to it, isn't there? I think. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, yeah. Uncle Charlie is a vampire. Right, exactly, exactly <laughs> that. There are these characters that are almost kind of human representations of monsters, I think, in that way, right? Um, I think it's the same with Stranger on a Train. I think that the obviously the birds too, like the ravens, there is something very, very gothic about even those shots of the raven, the, the crows on the on the climbing frames and that kind of thing. Uh -huh, you know? Yeah, and the schoolhouse. Um, the schoolhouse, the house itself uh, with the attic, you know, it is, uh -huh. there's something very, very gothic there. Obviously, Vertigo, the bell tower, the painting, you know, the spirits and all of that kind of thing is very present in, in that. So again, it's like he uses, he he's rooting us most of the time in a kind of real modern world. But there are these flourishes. We'll talk about Psycho more, I'm sure, throughout. But Psycho is this brilliant mix of 
it's starting off like a like more of an old school Hitchcock thriller about a woman stealing some money, and you you think that's what this movie's going to be. It's a kind of crime thriller about this woman on the run potentially who has done something wrong. And then the moment we arrive at the Bates Hotel and it's thunder and lightning and rain and the house with the stuffed animals and the dark corridors and the big winding staircase and you go, oh no, oh my God, we're in like a universal horror movie all of a sudden, <laughs> right? And it's like he he literally kind of switches genres at that point by using the gothic. So yeah, like he will, he'll use the gothic in a really interesting way where they're, they're probably, maybe apart from Rebecca, there aren't many films that are entirely gothic from beginning to end like an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation you know where you where we're, we're in just in this big gothic castle there's nothing quite like that it's it's like touches of gothic and hints of gothic that we get here and there kind of um peppered throughout his movies you know yeah like suspicions one that I'm recalling the the use of those sort of shadows and and, and bar like figures and yeah the, the sort of that gothic theme of a woman suspecting that her husband's gonna kill her yeah, so we've got all those in the mix, and obviously we've spoke about the lodger already. But you know, huge influences there from his time with Fritz Lang and FW More Now. You've got yeah. those brilliant use of like shadows and light, and you know, the lodger himself is a bit of a a gothic hero. He's like someone I think that you'd see in like a Bronte novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or a Universal monster movie too, right? This kind of dangerous outsider. He's maybe very he invisible man, side. isn't it? He's, yeah, almost the, the costume was very similar. Exactly that. Exactly <laughs> that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, there is a link between sort of German expressionism and Gothic, of course, and a lot of his early movies, like you say, F. W. Murnau, etc. There, there is this kind of expressionism which goes hand in hand with the Gothic. I think these big long shadows and these dark spaces and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the role of the uncanny in Hitchcock's work because it's something for me that I'm really drawn to. It really disturbs me and I know that you're a huge Lynch fan so I'm imagining Mm. the uncanny is something that is really attractive for you as a horror fan. So we've got examples such as like we've talked about space already, the home as being a space that should feel like home but yet it doesn't feel like home. We've got people like Judy resembles Madeline but is she Judy but is she like so we've got yes. like notes of the uncanny there and Hitchcock really seems to I think enjoy toying with the idea of the familiar and then disrupting that to make us feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable So are there any examples of the uncanny that you've come across that have affected you? And what do you think about the presence of it in Hitch's work in general? I think it's a little bit more subtle than, for example, Lynch or Kubrick and the way that they implore the, like, you know, The Shining is just uncanny, the movie, isn't it, basically? <laughs> and I don't know if there's anything that that overt in his movies. Like I said, I think there is something warmer about his films in that it does invite you in 
even if there are splashes of uncanny then that he presents you with from there. But um, certainly the, the ones you've mentioned are the first ones that came to mind for me. You know, dream sequences, I think of Spellbound, right? Uh-huh. And that Salvador Dali dream sequence. You know, technically, I suppose that maybe that doesn't count as Hitchcock because it was Dali that made that <laughs> bit. But of course, that, you know, dream sequences, the uncanny, so interesting. Um, the Lodger, which we've already talked about, you know, that 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 German expressionist touch of everything is accentuated. Everything is just a little bit... It's it's not naturalism, is it? It's something uh-huh. else that we get in movies like, you know, his early silent stuff, of course. So there is definitely something uncanny in The Lodger. Of course, Vertigo. Um, but other than that, I you know, I don't know. I, I can't think of many overt examples other than the ones that you've mentioned in terms of that we are presented with a real space and then maybe something will will invade that space again you know shadow of a doubt and rope and these sorts of movies where d- domestic equilibrium is kind of disrupted and something suddenly feels off i suppose mm-hmm. but it does it in a way that often is a bit more playful i think in hitchcock so for me there is less of that overt nightmarish uncanny in in a lot of hitchcock's movies at, compared to something like lynch and kubrick you know yeah and with you saying naturalism there it just made me think very quickly of Marnie and you know the the use there of like a lot of like projections suffusions yeah, and the red and, light and all of that yeah yeah the, the the painted ship at the bottom of the street it, you know all these things that they're meant to represent realism but also not because obviously being in Marnie's headspace you know a lot of these things are connected to memory in the past so it's mm. something mm-hmm. perhaps a bit uncanny about that as well Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Marnie, actually, Marnie is probably the one Hitchcock movie that I don't like very much. I think it's my least favorite Hitchcock movie. And I <gasps> it's think one maybe, of my favorites. Yeah, I know. I think I'm probably in the minority about this, but I, I find that film quite long and a bit of a slog. And mm-hmm. I think that maybe he is, you know, I, I sort of, the other thing I really love about Hitchcock is that he, he never seemed he always pushed himself to do something new and weird and 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 after sight from from about vertigo actually onwards every single film he was doing was something new and experimental and strange right and i really respect him for marnie and what he was trying for me i think that is a good example of for me it's pushing too far into doing something introspective and psychoanalytic and um i don't know a study of a human being to the point where it feels a little bit more inaccessible and I think that he sacrifices making a kind of fun crime movie or mystery movie or whatever that film is supposed to be on its surface for this kind of other stuff this kind of internal weird uncanny stuff that he's exploring and I kind of love what it's doing in theory but I think that some of his other movies juggled some of those themes just as well whilst also being a little bit slicker and more uh, fun to sit through on the surface. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Yeah, like more finesse. But yeah. I, think, I think the people that enjoy Marnie do enjoy it for, for that reason, that the way he brings us into her internal psychological space is just incredible. And technically, yes. there's just, I mean, you know, the, the, the safe robbery scene is just exquisite. 
<laughs> that is that is an all-timer right this the, with the high heel falling out of yeah. her pocket and everything incredible like that's one of the best moments of hitchcockian suspense and that is by far my favorite scene in that movie because that's the only scene in that movie that i think feels like classic hitchcock um and the rest of it is doing something very weird and different yeah <laughs> <laughs> So we've been skating around it, Mike, but let's get into Psycho. So, mm. so firstly, is this film's got real connections to horror through Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a film I know we both, yeah. you know, fair to say we like it a little bit. Greatest um, film ever made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, high five. And obviously Psycho is based on the novel by Robert Bloch. But I wanted to ask, do you think, do you think that there's an argument for this being the first slasher film absolutely yes um when i made my i did a series on slasher films uh in my podcast the very first season i did and the first film i discussed in that season was psycho it is kind of chapter one it's i would say psycho and peeping tom that both came out in the same year kind of hand in hand launched the slasher genre right psycho is like i said it's this on the surface, it's like a trick, right? It's like a the the, the whole yeah. point of the film is it's like a trick, a magic trick almost. But you, the you know, there was all these stories, obviously, famously about Hitch not wanting people to you know arrive late, and that you know you couldn't tell people about what happened. There was this air of secrecy. There was this kind of almost gimmickiness about the film because he didn't want people to know what was going to happen, you know, and this this moment when your main character is killed midway through the story and it actually becomes a story about this other man and not this woman who we were following up until that point. It's all really clever and it's a great, it's a great rug pull and all of that. I think what's really interesting historically about that film is that it became the movie about the woman getting stabbed to death in the shower. Like at mm-hmm. the very beginning of our chat, I talked about how... As a young budding horror fan, I was drawn to this movie because I'd seen pictures of it and I'd seen clips of it and I'd read about it. And all I knew about it was it's the movie where the woman gets stabbed to death in the shower. That is just one scene in like a very big, complex movie with all these other characters and things happening. But it's the centerpiece of the film. And not really before this had a centerpiece of a film been a stabbing sequence and and you know famously it sort of became the movie that people told their friends about at the time and people went to see it because it had this shocking moment of a woman being stabbed to death and so in some ways it's an early example of our morbid curiosity of seeing people get brutally murdered on screen right and and i think you know that is what the slasher mold became really you know the slasher movie went through kind of different iterations through the 60s and 70s. You know, you got things like Jallo and these kind of big elaborate death scenes. You got films like Black Christmas and other things like that. But then, of course, by the time it arrived with Halloween and then with Friday the 13th, essentially the point of these movies were people would go to see it to watch a man in a mask stab 
people to death, really. And and they became body count movies. They became mm-hmm. movies about, you know, you go and watch them for the fun series of grisly, gnarly deaths. You didn't really care too much about what happened in between. No one really goes to see a Friday the 13th movie to watch, like, the talky bits, right? You, you're, <laughs> going, you're going to watch Jason cut people up in different entertaining ways. And in some ways, Psycho was the blueprint of that because in the in amidst this wonderful masterpiece, this kind of thriller, this mystery, this kind of melodrama, it has everything going on in it. Mm-hmm. It's the film where the woman is stabbed to death in the shower. Like that's that's what it is. And 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 it's about this man, you know, loosely based on the real life, you know, Ed Gain. This is where um Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes in as well. The, it, it's the story of this man who seemed normal and had a friendly face, but actually was quietly getting off on stabbing women to death, essentially. So yeah, I do think that audiences had never really seen anything like that until this point. And, you know, nothing so explicit and something that almost reveled in that moment of violence. And that is, of course, how the slasher movie, uh, how the slasher format was born, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was like, I was looking at the ingredients that we identify as as making something a slasher film. And I was, I was very surprised at how many ticks this film gets. You know, mm. the kills, the small town with an isolated setting, the revenge driven backstory. Yeah. You know, the phallic the weapon. <laughs> yeah, the phallic weapon, the fact that the victim, particularly Janet Lee, is being punished for a transgression. She's being killed, you know. Uh, for doing something wrong often there is the element of punishment about uh about slashers you know uh yeah it's it's absolutely there you know obviously it does get tweaked and it gets honed and it gets simplified and it gets stripped down by the time you get to halloween and friday the 13th but there are absolute early elements of of the slasher in this movie for sure yeah in that there is slashing you know there is actual (laughs) slashing yeah so horror is in many ways, I think it's a great, it's about pushing boundaries and mm. re- reflecting as well, like the time, the temperature of the moment, which is exactly what Psycho did. You know, we, we've spoken about how Hitch killed off his leading star. We've got very interesting, innovative presentations when it comes to things like sex and gender, violence, the marketing campaign that we've touched upon. So how do you see Psycho, Mike, as being reflective of these aspects of horror breaking with convention and taking risks and how it acts as a form of social commentary well it's definitely uh it's definitely at a time when people suddenly started to realize that serial killers were a thing right obviously serial killers famously you know you got jack the ripper as one of the early kind of very famous in the media serial killers but when the whole ed gain kind of scandal occurred of this this man who it turned out was just kind of living out in the middle of nowhere quietly murdering people and wearing their skins and turning them into furniture and all this other stuff he was doing suddenly America and the rest of the world were kind of terrified at the thought of these human beings who look like us that may be actually doing something really grotesque and and nasty. And until this point on film, you hadn't really seen that. You know, you'd had like horror in terms of horror, it was very much kind of monster stuff. You know, it was gothic horror. It was Transylvanian castles. The horror was kind of out there away from us. You know, in the 1950s, it was aliens from outer space. It was big, giant atomic monsters attacking cities. It was in the UK, you had, you know, Hammer Horror was in its early days at this point, again, returning to the Gothic. So horror was this kind of otherworldly, fantastical thing. 
And then you had kind of thrillers that dealt with human beings doing unspeakable things. You had movies like Lady Abolique um, and The Night of the Hunter. Great examples of movies in which you have these kind of human serial killers, but they were done in a way that kind of placed them in the marketing sort of something other than horror. Obviously, I would argue these movies are all horror, but they they were kind of selling themselves as other things, as kind of thrillers or mysteries or suspense movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think where where he really pushed boundaries here is is changing not not just inventing the slasher, but changing horror forever. You know, like it, he he lured you in, as I said, with this idea that you're going to see a movie that feels very Hitchcocky and about a woman in trouble you know, who escapes with a bag of money and has to evade the police and being caught. And then all of a sudden, everything grinds to a halt and we find ourselves in this gothic mansion. And even when, even the cinematography changes at that point, right? You know, we're mm-hmm. in this kind of sunstruck melodrama until we get to the thunder and lightning and the gothic house, and then we're in a horror film. And so I think he did all of these things to completely push our expectations of what we know of as horror, what we were expecting. He was breaking all the rules, basically, and making a whole bunch of new ones. Um, Also the kind of sexual element, too, and the fact that he dressed up as his mother. And I know people kind of complain now about that long monologue that kind of (laughs) explains, you know... Uh, it explains this whole psychology um, behind it. but um, And it's kind of quite dated psychology around it, obviously, as well. But um, again, this was blowing people's minds at the time. Like, people had never heard of or seen anything like this before. So in so many ways, Psycho, it did. It broke every rule. It kind of committed every taboo. and But it started a whole new one, you know. Yeah, and I think importantly as well, or or just very interestingly as, as something in tandem, is that Hitchcock himself is taking a risk with this film personally, right? So yeah. it's not just like what's within the film, but the act of making this film and having to, you know, finance it through Shanley Productions and Yeah. You know, so well, it's a personal risk as well. Absolutely. Like I said, I think when he reached about I think when he reached North by Northwest, right? He made North by North rear window and North by Northwest. And Throughout the 40s and 50s, he was kind of alternating, right, between doing these kind of claustrophobic, fun little thrillers that were almost like plays, like Rope mm-hmm. and Dial M, and these big sort of travelogue movies, right? Like the... the Catch you a know, Thief and... Catch a yeah. Thief and North by Northwest, these kind of big sweeping movies with big budgets and locations. And... It felt like by the time he had done Rear Rear Window was like the pinnacle of that kind of claustrophobic thriller. And North by Northwest was kind of the absolute pinnacle of his big travel log, you know, big sweeping movie. And it it does feel like after that, he's like, right, now it's time to start taking some risks, right? He's basically (laughs) made two of the biggest and best movies in the world. Now he gets carte blanche to just do weird stuff. And he made (laughs) Vertigo, which is fucking weird uh and then yeah psycho like you say he had to strip down his budget he had to shoot it in black and white he used a television crew right and again there is something there's something horror about that too that Mm -hmm. it's kind of this sort of shoestring yeah almost you know almost like grindhousey kind of vibe to it compared (laughs) to his beautiful vistas of the films he'd been making up until that point you know Open it. 
don't. We've got to see if there's anything. I know. But not just yet. Let's stay this way for a minute. So I just want to go back a few years now from Psycho and turn to one of my personal favourites, 1948, Rope. Oh, so, <laughs> so good. So good. We've, we've just spoken then about taking risks. And here we are again, evidence of Hitchcock trying to do something different, innovative. In fact, I was having a conversation with someone uh, last week and they said, we were talking about Hitchcock's style and what is it? And um, we decided that his style is experimentation that is his style right yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely experiment you know again it's weird isn't it it's like you could almost call some of his films experimental films except they're they're also like i keep saying really fun to watch they're not homework they're not movies that you would write an essay about but never actually pop on so again we're back to him giving us knowledge and it's Mm. less about what happened but when if and how there's going to be a discovery and how it's going to affect people and how it's going to play out. So we're in that suspense territory, but I think it's important to to remember the distinction between the play and the film. Hitchcock shows the strangulation at the start. We don't get that in the play. So again, boundary pushing and really trying to bring this film into the space of horror, I would argue. Yeah. So what do you think about those like horror elements that are at work in rope i mean you've you spoke to it a little bit already but i guess Uh, for you is it is it that that kind of production that brandon's putting on and for me as well it's how how together he holds himself and it's always one more thing isn't it let's 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 do this and let's invite rupert and let's he's never content it's always got to be you know he has to be i do read him in many ways as being almost like a bit of a Hitchcock stand-in in that he is producing yes. this, he's creating the show. Here's the audience coming in to watch, you know? So yes. what, what do you think? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. I think you're right. I, I find Rope, Rope is one of my favourites too. It would be in my top three. And I think that it is in some ways the textbook Hitchcock film. It's almost like if I was showing somebody a Hitchcock film to, to kind of show you the sort of things he does, I would show them Rope, right? Is this kind of we've already talked about how it is the quintessential example of his kind of suspense, the body in the table, will anyone find it? That in itself is a brilliant conceit. It's really tense. It's genuinely tense. Like the moments <laughs> when the, the woman is clearing the table oh. and like, oh my God, absolutely love it. Um, It's it's hilariously funny that the, uh-huh. the, the character interactions are brilliant. Brandon is this incredible sort of anti-hero, right? Who is, like you say, he's a perfect hitch standard because he's this, pretty mean-spirited but somehow also quite charismatic and likable guy right and the film and that 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 sums up the film too in some ways i would say it's one of the most mean-spirited films he ever made and it's so boundary pushing it's shocking to this day i think also there's a lot of kind of queer undertones to this movie right that was really Mm -hmm. ahead of its time and i know that he had to cut some of that back from the play in order to actually get the film released because there was the production code obviously the Hayes code and all this kind of thing he couldn't make it too gay but Hitchcock was a master at kind of sneaking that stuff in Mm -hmm. not very subtly but getting it past the censors right and yeah just this idea that the whole film is this let's be honest gay couple who have this kink for strangling people and then seeing if they can get away with it and there is something 
like sex like it's like they're getting off on it sexually right and like everything about this movie you would be shocked to learn was made in the 1940s in hollywood i think right so everything about the film is so bold transgressive shocking hilarious and the whole conceit is terrifying like i said this idea that they think they're so much better than everyone else that this this kind of horrible sort of superiority, this kind of ubermensch Superman complex they have, where they are kind of part of high society and therefore they are above kind of morals and laws and want to push that further and further and see what they can get away with. So I think the film at its heart is one of the most horrific, mean-spirited movies Hitchcock ever made. But it's dressed up as this like super fun play, um, which is also a technical marvel too because of the long take. So yeah, it's um, it's a perfect movie. It's perfect. Yeah, and we've spoken already about how Hitchcock likes to corrupt. Uh, I guess the things that we view as as good, as positive, and I think this this cast and choice of Jimmy Stewart and where Rupert's character sits within this little mm. triumvirate and his responsibility and how I would argue almost Rupert is an antihero <laughs> because yes. you know he's the driver of this theory, but he's almost like. I'll load the gun and I will give it to you. Uh, when you shoot, I'll, I'll stand back. Yes. yes, and I'll judge you. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And actually, I wonder whether that... I don't know. I wonder whether James Stewart was slightly miscast, actually, in that role. And I know that he himself kind of didn't love this movie and playing this role. And I know people have talked about it before. But, mm-hmm. you know, I can see why they'd get James Stewart to do it. He's this big name. And he's still great in it. But there Fantastic. is something I do wonder whether that role of um, uh, of Rupert should have been played with a little bit more nastiness in a way. And I think th- that that lovely, kind, everyman vibe of James Stewart playing that kind of nastiness, I don't know if it quite comes through as much as it should do in a way. But, but I, I absolutely agree with you that Rupert is in some ways the monster of this whole piece he's the monster that thinks he's a good man whereas the other two are actually pretty happy with the fact that they're monsters right and they are like like you said they're doing what their mentor told them to do they think they're trying to they think they're impressing him don't they that's the thing and when he's horrified by it they're sort of shocked um so yeah i i agree with you it's it's about it's a horror about the ideas at play and the ideas come from above, right? And they come from Rupert in this world. So yeah, all of that is kind of really rich and interesting. I just think it's interesting that Rupert's a publisher. Yeah. And there's all this talk about words. You gave my words a meaning I never dreamt of. So I think in a lot of ways, this is a film about, you know, being more careful with words and the meanings that they have and how Mm. people can translate them and just be watchful with that. I think Rupert as a publisher you know, only publishes books he likes, you know, big words, small sales. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's very interesting to me that, that little uh, connection there. Absolutely. And it does feel like, again, like Hitchcock, very smart man, obviously, but I think he also pokes fun at kind of academic elitism, any uh-huh. kind of, I mean, this film is about all different kinds of elitism and, and, the, the kind of evil in elitism and it's something that goes all the way through to movies like get out i think you know was was here in this film at this point in 1948 it's amazing so what i also see in rope is 
an interesting crossover with horror, I think, is the idea of audience complicity. Mm. So it's something that in horror I really enjoy having my complicity brought into question. It's yeah. a space I really like to be in. And I think, again, it's given us that information. We're in this privileged position. And thus it complicates our relationship with the scenario, with the characters, as you said before, Mike, who has the information, what kinds of informational hierarchies are happening and how that affects dynamics, Yeah, you know? And I think it just enhances what we're watching. We've got things like Judy's reveal scene that we've spoken about. And to some degree as well, I think, you know, placing us in Jeff's perspective through what we experience in, in Rear Window as well. Yeah. Puts us again, it's those questions that, we're forced to ask about ourselves you know yeah. in rope do we want brandon and philip to get caught or do we want to actually see them succeed yeah you know? and i think yeah. hitchcock more than most has a really acute awareness of his audience so what what are your thoughts on this and the idea of complicity and and your how much do you enjoy being in that space I love it too. I think that is part of part of the magic of Hitchcock. Like I said, most of his films are placing you alongside somebody who is not what society would deem a moral person. They're making awful decisions. They're murdering people. They're, you know, whatever, conning people. And we can't help but want them to get away with it, right? It's 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 Hitchcock using the medium of film really cleverly to make us question our own morals and desires and the things about ourselves that we might not want to admit in that we might like watching people. We might like, you know, there might be something cathartic about watching somebody murder somebody else and get away with it. It kind of, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's always obsessed. How many movies does he have characters talking about committing the perfect murder and getting away <laughs> with it, right? It's something that Hitchcock kind of makes us all admit that we've probably thought about from time to time, right? And I love it. I love uh, that complicity. And so many movies since have tried to do that to varying degrees of success, I think. And sometimes they really don't work and make me feel uncomfortable and not in a fun way. But Mm. his movies always do it so successfully. And I completely agree. I mean, Brandon, you do kind of want them to get away with it in Rope, right? The moments of suspense are the moments when the the murderers might be about to get caught. And it's like, well, hang on. Why is that suspenseful? I should want the murderers to get <laughs> caught, right? So, yeah, he he uses the medium of film in such a clever way to kind of, he, you know, he, we are his puppets, basically. Like, he he has got us, like, putty in his hand to do whatever, he you know, he wants with. And, uh, yeah, that kind of complicity is very much part of that. I mean, from the moment that our main character, Janet Lee is murdered in Psycho, we're then aligned with Norman Bates, right? I mean, I know we've got, um, you know, her sister that comes into it after that, but mm-hmm. really she's a less interesting character than Norman. You yeah. know, we want to, we, we sort of want to root for Norman. Mm-hmm. From that, right. <laughs> so yeah, like he does it time and time again in such an interesting way. And so I wanted to touch briefly on the horror of spaces We've spoken about mm. how Hitch disrupts the home, whether it's having an insider come in, the lodger, whether it's someone moving into a space that's like alienating or threatening, Rebecca, suspicion, or yeah. incorrupting the family home, shadow of a doubt. How do you think then that Hitchcock creates that sense of fear through his use of space and how he uses locations and environments? Well, he uses very everyday 
spaces that again wasn't that common actually weirdly like psycho you know wasn't it shocking for being one of the first um ever movies to show a woman flushing a toilet and stuff like things like having a domestic bathroom like in the lodger there's a moment when a, a woman is in the bath and i think all of that stuff was quite shocking at the time yeah. right and and so he shows us these very sort of in some ways quite mundane spaces you know and but then puts something extraordinary happening in them so Mm. i think that in that way he obviously makes us feel unsafe in our own space you know like oh my god i've never thought that somebody could get me when i'm at my most vulnerable in the shower and stab me to death all of a sudden the shower doesn't seem like such a safe private space anymore so i think he obviously he subverts the idea of the home as being a place of safety in almost all of his films and all of his thrillers, the home becomes something unsafe. Like you say, if it's Shadow of a Doubt, where you've got this kind of uncle who kind of infiltrates this family's home, or whether it's something more overtly like a home invasion, like the moment when the bad guy comes into James Stewart's flat at the end of Rear Window to kill him or whatever. There are there are moments of the home being like you know, for want of a better word, penetrated by some uh-huh. outside force, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That kind of flips it from being a safe space into something much, much worse. And yeah, he does that in all kinds of ways. Like we talked about kind of height, he uses kind of aerial shots to kind of let us see people that are sort of trapped in situations, trapped in domestic situations. You know, Dialem for Murder is quite an interesting one we haven't really brought up, but that, you know, that's a story about a woman whose whose husband is planning on murdering her. Again, a kind of really nasty conceit at the centre of it, filmed as a play, but also filmed in 3D, which is really weird, (laughs) right? So a lot of this kind of he was really, really actually putting us, literally trying to put us inside this home with this woman, like for a lot of that movie. Um, so yeah, I think he uses space um, in a really interesting way. And and he kind of partners that with how he uses his camera too, whether uh-huh. it's showing us something 3D yep. or he's showing us something in what might seem like a single take, like in rope, um, you know, uh, to to kind of, yeah, like trap us i suppose in these situations with these people usually something quite dangerous yeah 100 percent. i think a lot of it is about where he puts his camera and what he's yeah. showing and, and from whose perspective it's being shown you know rebecca's suspicion when we get those like bars those shadows the webs you know it just adds yeah. to the intensity doesn't it and in specifically in rebecca um you know, characters, well, the second Mrs. De Winter shown to be very small in these settings. So mm. you've got this idea of fear of a shadow of a doubt as well. The, when um, young Charlie makes a discovery at the library and we've got that crane shot, it's like yeah. the idea of being in those extreme moments and feeling small as well is totally. magnificent use of space, isn't it? And also I love that he often has things happening in homes that are in busy areas, you know, that you know, rear window is a space that is surrounded by people but nobody can help you know, dial M <laughs> is the same and one of the most powerful I think one of his most kind of disturbing movies is Frenzy and there's that moment in Frenzy where somebody is murdered in a flat in London And then the camera, I think rather than sort of show us the murder, Hitchcock's camera kind of comes out of the door, right? And it moves down the stairs, all the way down the stairs of this apartment block, out of the front door. 
And then suddenly we're in busy Covent Garden in the middle of the daytime. And it's just a normal London scene. But in that flat, through that door, something unspeakable has just happened or is happening, right? And he kind of shows us there is something very chilling about this idea that these things hide in plain sight almost, right? You never know what's going on behind closed doors or behind closed curtains and I suppose that's another thing he loves to do you know Psycho begins with us going through the window of an apartment you know when the curtains are drawn Rope begins with kind of we're looking down on the street and then we turn towards the apartment of a window this idea of kind of peeking in at somebody's mm-hmm. inner, <laughs> inner life as well is definitely something that he's always been quite obsessed with so the home is a, a place that is actually a place I think that he presents us with as, ha- as having quite a lot of bad stuff going on and he's going to show us what bad stuff goes on behind closed curtains, you know. And I'm glad you mentioned Frenzy because it's mm. a film that in 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 my sort of Hitchcock circles is there's a lot of talk about it at the moment. It seems to be having this slight renaissance moment, which is really good to see. Um, yeah. I see a lot of the yellow in this. You know, obviously we've got the sex and the violence, the serial yeah. killer. What do you think this film tells us about Hitchcock and horror? Uh, you know specifically it's coming at the end of his career I think it's interesting you've got the lodger and this at the bookends of his career both films are about serial killers yeah um what what do you think he's he's exploring here in in any sort of new innovative ways that we may not have seen before I think it's well I think it was a sign that had Hitch been able to continue on he would have keep he would have kept making increasingly shocking horror movies right you know the 1970s were a very very different decade for horror than anything we that had come before and partly that was the that was the that was the result of films like psycho right and peeping tom is that suddenly there was and you know censorship relaxed there were all kinds of reasons why in the 70s we got this boom of nasty grisly exploitation movies and everything from a clockwork orange to last house on the left to you know texas chainsaw whatever suddenly horror was a lot nastier than it had ever been and hitch kind of really kind of i don't know matches up to a lot of those yeah. other movies with frenzy which is a genuinely really uncomfortable film in a lot of ways like that this this kind of prolonged rape and murder scene that happens in frenzy is really disturbing i think and and i think it goes to show that you know i don't know he there's there's a there's a there's a plus and minus to this i think because i think in some ways it's it's a great film it's not his best film and sometimes i think is he better when he's under the restraints of the Hayes Code of, you know, like mm-hmm. he used so many clever techniques to get around that. You know, we talked about it with Rope and with other movies where, you know, he was kind of smuggling in other ideas, you know, um, under the radar. Whereas with this movie, it did feel like he had can't can't blanche to show us anything he wanted and he really did and it is much more exploitation or it is much more sort of smutty it kind of makes uh-huh. me feel a bit like i need a shower after <laughs> watching frenzy right but it's all but also i do think it's an awesome movie it's it it really kind of shows the gritty sleazy kind of london you know grime um in a way that he well in a way that he hadn't done in about 30 40 years probably so I think it's a great movie and it shows just how much Hitchcock continued to want to push things and push us. Um, So yeah, I'm glad that people are are talking about that movie too. All the water above this point will soon be clear. 
clear of industrial effluent, clear of detergents, clear of the waste products of our society with which for so long we have poisoned our rivers and canals. Let us rejoice that pollution will soon be banished from the waters of this river and that there will soon be no foreign... Look! What is it? It's a woman! What's that round her neck? She's been strangled. Looks like a tie. Yes, it's a tie, all right. Another necktie murder. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I find interesting is, again, this idea of quite a likable villain and a hero, or maybe more precisely an innocent, as being someone who's less likable and how he toys yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But he does really, really, really unspeakable things in this movie that we actually sort of see him do. But you're absolutely right. And there, and then there are moments of just very classic Hitchcock suspense in that movie, like the potato lorry, you know, like when he's hiding on the back of the lorry at the end. Like that's just classic Hitch, you know. So yeah, it's a it's a fascinating film in that regard. Yeah. So Hitchcock was, of course, good friends with the De Maurier family, and he returned to Daphne's work three times over, over the course of his career. So first Jamaica Inn, then Rebecca. And I think it's interesting little aside that Jamaica Inn represents the last of his British films and Rebecca, the first of his American films. And then, mm-hmm. of course, returns to the, to the Birds, which is another film that I think we'd agree sits more confidently in the horror genre. Mm. You know, it's it's not an allegorical tale. It's a creature feature, you know. Yeah, it's a monster movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a moment where the protagonist gets declared to be a witch. So what's your reading on the birds then, Mike? And why do you think it's so effective? I mean, not to sound basic, but it's just a really well-made monster movie, isn't it? It is so, so good. And I think this is the first time when he is really, really presenting us with a horror movie. Like, even Psycho, you could argue if you wanted to that it's more of a thriller and with these kind of moments of bursts of horror. This movie is about killer birds pecking people's eyes out and pecking children to death and stuff. Like, it's a small town under attack from a monster um it's it's so well made but again hitchcock obviously there are so many stories about this movie and making this movie but he doesn't take any easy way out he's pushing himself he's seeing what else he can do he's experimenting massively in this film suddenly we have no score no musical Mm -hmm. score he's working with hundreds of live birds (laughs) he's working with tippy hedron who you know he had problems with directing she had problems with him as a director you know there were all kinds of issues there sounds like it was one of the least fun movies to make ever right but he's working with children (laughs) he's working with children yeah he's working with children and animals the things that you should never do right um it is but oh my god does it work this film like um he it felt the film really takes its time it's really really deliberately paced and 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 kind of it builds that suspense in a brilliant way in the first hour where he gives you little glimpses of birds doing something weird or this or that and and then when the full-on attacks start happening, it's it's relentless from beginning to end. That second hour where they're just under constant attack and we don't know why is brilliant. And I think, again, it's that 
it's that classic mix of Hitchcockian suspense where we know sort of what's happening and what's coming because the film is called The Birds and there are kind of hints about it throughout the first act. But also there is quite a lot of information withheld from this. Yeah. Why are the why is this happening? Why are the birds doing it? Is it just happening in Bodega Bay? Is it happening elsewhere? Is it over at the end or is it not over? Is it going to continue? Like not, it doesn't really, it gives us a very like insular view of this big catastrophe happening, right? Like we're so aligned with Tippy and this yeah. other family of characters that she spends time with who are so much of the film just enclosed in a boarded up house. It's kind of like M. Night Shyamalan signs, isn't it? Where you're, you're, <laughs> you're just with this family in this boarded up house. So you just don't really know what's going on and when the next is when when the next attack is coming and why. So yeah, for all of those reasons, it's like nightmare fuel. This film, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so good. Yeah, and you mentioned there about it having a score, something that's very unique in Hitchcock. And mm. uh, score in his films is such an integral part of our experience. And I think, you know, Hitchcock and by extension, the team who worked with him, you know, also knew when silence needed to be part of the score as well. Yeah. You know, um, what are your thoughts then on how score contributes to horror in Hitchcock? Um, something I found quite interesting about Psycho, I, I had as a guest on my podcast, Neil Brands, the, com the composer and musician, and he said something really interesting about Psycho in that you have this kind of classic, more melodramatic score in the first act, again, where it's kind of like she's driving through the rain and there's that, da -da -da -da, and that is a really kind of tense moment. Mm -hmm. But when the big murders happen, the, the music... Neil Brand described it to me as being quite unfeeling and cold. It's not actually giving you a kind of emotion. It's just sort of making the sound of a knife. Like it's just there to substitute in for showing the actual knife penetrating the flesh, right? Um, so already there's something a little bit sort of experimental about that shower scene and that score that we get. Um, but yeah, so I think he uses music to such interesting different effects in all of his movies. You know, sometimes you get these big, beautiful sweeping scores like Vertigo is a really famous example, right? Where it's like the whole film is scored in this big, like beautiful kind of um, music. And then Psycho, it's doing different things and it's doing slightly more experimental things. So he knew when to hold back. He knew mm -hmm. when to give us just silence. Rope has no score at all, right? Because it's like more like we're root, we're plonked in this kind of realism and this naturalism yeah. almost you know we've got no ca visible camera cuts and we've got no score he wants us to believe like we're just like in this room with these people almost um marnie again like you know you think of the most tense moment that we've talked about with the safe there's no score in that moment right i seem to remember yeah. so yeah mm -hmm. he does he it's almost like he knows that music it kind of creates or emphasizes the artifice like he emphasizes that this is a film that you're watching 
So he knows when to use that to manipulate our emotions in a very cinematic, classic way. But also when he wants us to feel really uncomfortable, I think he knows when to hold back on that as well and like plonk us in the cold reality of what's happening with no distraction almost. So it's it's kind of fitting that for his most pure, pure horror movie, The Birds, he has no score at all, right? Other than the mm-hmm. kind of noises of bird sounds and that kind of thing. So yeah, actually the film is a really quiet film, isn't it? Like mm-hmm, I think very... of The Birds as being super quiet, like all of them just sitting in that house waiting. And obviously there were these bursts of noisy violence, but they're quite few and far between. And the rest of the film is really, really quiet. So yeah, sound is sort of fascinating in his films. Yeah, I, I really I like that you said manipulation. That's definitely a, the word that I would choose. Like scores, just another layer of manipulation that he's putting on top. You know, yeah. Psycho puts us on edge. You know, in uh, North by Northwest, it feels like we're being chased. You know, yeah. so it really creates those senses of freedom and entrapment. And in Vertigo, you mentioned Mike, we're really in this dream hypnosis state, like this trance, walking around like Scotty, yeah. and the man who knew too much actually forms part of the narrative. And you know, yeah. Hitchcock takes care to 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 play as that little moment from Storm Clouds Cantata before we get to the Royal Albert Hall. So he's queuing us. So it's like, it's a wonderful suspense that he creates there as well. Um, So that when it gets to that point, we're almost like holding our breath at this this moment. And I think as well, to touch on sound as well as score, you know, or perhaps how the two intersect, you know, in the birds, we've also got the children singing those rhymes, which are so creepy. Mm. <laughs> and there's a real dichotomy there between like threat and innocence. I think yeah, at the end of yeah. rope, we've got those alarms going as well, like the sirens. Like that is almost part of a soundtrack. I think absolutely, yeah, that's right. Oh my god, the, I mean, that's the other be- beautiful thing about rope, right? Is that the changing in the lighting and the big neon signs in the background and the street noises and all of that happening in the background. It's amazing. But yeah, like I love when he uses seemingly mundane sounds to to and he turns them into a score almost you're right like the the children's nursery rhyme which spoiler alert when we get to our top five i mean that's like that's my favorite <laughs> hitchcockian moment ever like the the climbing frame sequence is my favorite moment in hitchcock's career but um the moments in strangers on a train as well because isn't there it's been a while since I've seen it, but I think there's some sort of like merry-go-round music playing, right? When he yep. commits the murder in Strangers on a Train. And then that music recurs when he sees the the girl with the glasses and she yep. looks into his eyes and that murder comes back with that music playing. And he's using these things that, again, quite these days feel quite common in horror, like a mm. creepy children's nursery rhyme or creepy merry-go-round music or carnival music. Um, but yeah, he he kind of really was an early adopter of that of using like not just your typical kind of score like a hammer score that goes he uses like weird different types of music to kind of make us feel uneasy in that way yeah yeah it's the it's the music of everyday life and what what could put you on edge more than that these are sounds that we're going to hear out on the street and just Mm. as we walk about yeah it's masterful 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 (laughs) so in horror, then, we talk about how villains are often some of the most enduring characters in the genre. Mm. And when I think of Hitchcock's villains, they too are amongst the most memorable. How far do you agree with, with this? And, you know, what are your thoughts on Hitchcock's villains? Oh, they are always the most fun characters. Let's be honest. They're the most fun 
charismatic characters. Um, there are common tropes in Hitchcock's villains. They're often queer coded. They often have yeah. odd relationships with their mothers. They're often social <laughs> outcasts in some way, but they're also often quite polite and charming as well. So mm-hmm. there's all these kind of really interesting things about them, but all of these things combined, I think, often make them the most interesting and fun and watchable characters in his films. Again, sorry to keep bringing it up as an example, but Brandon in Rope, right, is like the best example of that. Um, Norman Bates, of course, like gorgeous, sexy Anthony Perkins and who has so much charisma and has this really real boy next door face is also this villain who you sort of want to sympathise with at some points in the film, right, as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, Mrs. Danvers, right, like these are Mrs. the characters... Danvers. These are the characters that people remember and love in Hitchcock's films. And I think, again, it, it gives us an insight into Hitch's personality. <laughs> he loves that kind of like nastiness, that wickedness. And he loves the nasty characters, I think. Like there is just something joyous and sexy about Hitchcock villains, I think, and the way in which he presents them to us. So, yeah, like I, I, I always think they're the most interesting characters, way more than the kind of the Cary Grant good guy, you know, or the James <laughs> good guy. Apart from when those two play weirdos, like in <laughs> gonna say. Or Vertigo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then, Mike, I asked you what may have been the most difficult question of all for this mm. chat. I asked you for your top five Hitchcock horror moments. So, and I have mine as well. So This was mean of you. This was very mean. <laughs> and also you gave me extra stipulations, which were even meaner. So, yeah, how dare you? This wasn't going to be easy, Mike. Oh, it's really hard. I was really tense about this. I felt I felt Hitchcockian tension about creating this top five. Oh, my aim is achieved. Okay, yeah. so let's take it one by one then. Um... Okay, so what is your first Hitchcock horror moment? So this is a weird one, but like, it's because, just to (laughs) let people know that Rebecca was quite mean about this, because you also said that I I had to have at least two moments from his British period. This is hard for me, because I am, it's been a long time since I rewatched his early pre-Rebecca stuff. Um, And this was one of the ones that came to mind for me. And it's one that I watched at uni and it's just really stuck with me. And we we talked about sound design a lot. And this is a a moment that is tense due to sound design, basically. But I'm going for a film called Blackmail from 1929. This was one of his like really, really early talky movies. I think it was originally silent and then they reshot it with sound or something. But Mm -hmm. essentially, like it's this character of Alice um, who Hmm. in the first act of the film is somebody attempts to rape her and she has to grab a bread knife and stab him and kill him essentially and then she's got this like lingering guilt of oh my god I've killed this man am I gonna get away with it am I you know blah 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 and there's this brilliant moment the next morning when she's sat having breakfast with her I think it's her family at this table and again it's such a brilliant example of Hitchcock giving us an insight into somebody's psyche using camera and sound where this this woman is just like talking this other woman around the dinner table is just sort of talking casually about knives mm-hmm. and there's a close up on another man with a bread knife cutting a slice of bread to make some toast and we're getting these close ups of Alice just looking at the knife and then hearing this other woman talk about the knife and it almost goes into uncanny is this really happening territory like we're suddenly inside this woman's mind and the sound design does this really clever thing where 
everything that this woman, this other woman is saying, the volume dips away. Um, mm-hmm. So she almost becomes muted. But the only words that we hear are when she says the word knife. So we get this close up on Alice, who is filled with this kind of guilt and fear. And she's watching this man using a knife, slicing this bread. And then in the background, all we can hear is this woman going, knife, knife. And that word knife gets louder and louder and louder until the final time it's literally like knife and, and like <laughs> it's like a jump scare of this woman saying the word knife and it's just i just it it stayed with me because it's such a wonderful example of like a very mundane again home domestic situation that has somehow been twisted to be uncanny that builds and suspense and ends in a jump scare. So it, in some ways, it takes all of those elements of horror that we've been talking about, but it's not actually the murder sequence. It's not actually her being caught. It's not anything happening other than this internal struggle um, around a breakfast table, basically. So yeah, I love that that sequence. It's a really, really fun and clever sequence. A beautiful moment. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. Mm. So my first one is the milk scene from Suspicion. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, nice. First, we get a light on in the darkness, and then we get a huge casting of Cary Grant's shadow in the hallway. So already he appears to be like this larger than life, threatening, ominous figure. And then we see those like web-like shadows again. And then we see Grant and he's he's in total silhouette. So we've got those ideas of him being unknowable, sinister, and he's ascending the stairs. And of course, we've got the famous light bulb inside the drink, which makes us project so much onto this innocent item. It's like Hitchcock has corrupted the most innocent, a glass of milk. (laughs) I mean, you can't get much more innocent than that. Um, And I think as well, what, what really helps to create this moment is the camera is at the top of the stairs the, the whole time and it really it, it, it focuses on Grant as he ascends the stairs and he's bringing the milk on the train. It's almost as though he's bringing the drink to us. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. The horror. And then we've got that Viennese uh, waltz music playing in the background as well that Perfect. we've heard peppered throughout the film. So it's just... It's a beautiful Perfect. moment. And I can almost feel like Cary Grant relishing this performance, this yes, scene. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, it was a really great way to play with Cary Grant's kind of persona in that film, uh-huh. wasn't it? I think it was so, so good. Yeah. Those moments as well. I mean, it's like, it's funny, isn't it? These little moments of domestic objects again, like a bread knife, like a bottle uh-huh. of milk. You know, I think of Notorious too and the the cup, the teacup and, that, you know, like those kind of moments he he creates amazing stuff around those kind of little mundane household objects, doesn't he? I think, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what's up next? Are we we're gonna get a preamble for this one? Is this no. another weird one? Or this is this is a classic. This a is classic. a classic. Okay. This is um. This is. Well, I've talked about it a bit already. It's the it's the murder sequence from Strangers on a Train, um, and it does really feel like classic horror to me because it happens in a carnival and this is a weird uncanny sequence as we see this man stalking this woman you know and there's a lot of preamble there's a lot of tension and suspense you know there's this kind of cat and mouse vibe to it but uh, and I won't go into it again but just that mix of like the dark shadows the impending violence, the suspense that we know that something bad is happening. It's like that feeling of terror, that feeling that you know something bad is happening, 
the merry-go-round music <laughs> all creates this again what is now considered very very classic quintessential horror that was actually kind of this weird experimental moment almost in the middle of this crime thriller right and this strangers on a train has everything it's 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 a really mm. funny film it's got that amazing amazing act- <laughs> action sequence on the carousel at the end which is one of my favorite <laughs> like funniest moments in hitchcock's career but it also has these moments of real pure nasty horror and this is one of them so yeah i like just for the way this this sequence looks and sounds i think it's one of the most on the surface kind of horror moments in his career as well you know yeah what a fantastic one and again it's it's bringing in the idea of this is a i guess a it's a space of entertainment which we see that reference a lot in hitchcock's work you know these fairgrounds and theater spaces so it's almost like he's commenting on him himself as an entertainer and then the idea of this is a space where you should be having a good time this should be mm. joyous and mm. and again it's happening in plain sight almost you know yes it's... yes there are just people walking around like yes absolutely that makes it so much creepier as well and carnivals creep me out rebecca to be honest so, <laughs> you know, yeah i'm lucky there was no clowns there at least you well, know? <laughs> so so my second moment is Mrs. Danvers trying to encourage the second Mrs. De Winter in Rebecca to jump from her bedroom. Nice. This was almost on my list. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So so good. Oh, nice. So so yeah. So poor Joan Fontaine. She's just being humiliated at the ball, dressed as Caroline De Winter. Maxim is furious again. <laughs> Rebecca's presence is just everywhere she turns. And Mrs. Danvers is here. She's like a poison worm in her ear. And we see we see Mrs. Danvers looking at the windows. And it's almost like Hitchcock showing her have the thoughts, the idea. And, and then she opens them under this guise that, oh, you just need some air, madam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and everything, I, I really feel in this moment, everything that the Joan Fontaine character is feeling paranoid about, Mrs. Danvers is almost confirming, you know, it's the mm. inferiority, everything, she just confirms it. And it's so, once they get to the window, both of them, it's so beautifully framed as well. It's really yes. tight. So it's almost as though Mrs. Danvers is whispering into our ear. And it's so soft as well at this moment. She goes very soft and we get yes. a close-up of Joan Fontaine and a tear forms and it actually looks for a moment that she might consider it and it mm-hmm. and then we, it gets obviously it all gets interrupted by the firework and it's just such a brilliant moment the the beats of suspense as you say it's it's, it's again it's back to that anticipation oh it's wonderful it's almost like that that moment sort of marks the end the turning point of the film doesn't it as well you know uh-huh. like we sort of don't go back to mandalay from that point onwards because That's then right. the fireworks go off then it's the body then we're down in the hut and we're in london and like it it sort of pivots into being a different movie from that point doesn't yeah. it but that that first act of the movie it is the kind of climax point. It's the crescendo, isn't it? That moment with Mrs. Danvers at the window. And it's so good. I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing choice. Okay. So what have we got next? What's okay, at number so three? This is why I'm going to slightly preamble again and say that I have cheated a little bit because you told me I had to have two moments from the British period. I couldn't think of another one that I wanted to include because I had the lodger, but I couldn't think of a single specific moment from the lodger. I kind of think the whole movie, really, the lodger. But instead, I've gone with his return to Britain and I've gone with Frenzy. Um, We've talked about Frenzy (laughs) quite a bit, but Frenzy 1972 
the the rape and murder sequence um mm-hmm. in Brenda's office is is genuinely you know it's not often that hitch does something that is very kind of po-faced serious scary troubling and uncomfortable in the way that he does in this you know like all of his movies no matter how nasty and mean-spirited they get they have this kind of air of fun and wicked sense of humor almost and frenzy has that in other points but in this one sequence it, it really does feel like he he is making us as uncomfortable as possible in this scene where you know rusk our main character and murderer uh bob rusk kind of arrives at this woman's office brenda's office he finds her alone and and there is this and the scene is kind of quite prolonged as he decides oh no this is this is the woman that i'm gonna attack next basically and they have this long conversation and he then sort of locks the doors and she sort of starts to know that something's going on and she she tries to kind of calmly get out of it and she tries to reason with him and she's like, let's go out for a drink or let's go and do this. And I don't know, there's something about it that is deeply, deeply uncomfortable and real and quite triggering almost, I think, in the way that he handles this sequence in her desperately trying to smartly come up with all these different ways to get out of this uncomfortable situation because there is that Hitchcockian suspense in that we know it's coming, she knows it's coming, and she's trying to do something about it, but nothing she can do will stop it. And then we have this very deeply uncomfortable kind of sexual assault scene followed by a strangulation with his necktie. And it's just a really, it's a really ugly scene. Like it's ugly in a number of ways and it's really uncomfortable. And even the face that she pulls at the end when she's strangled is weird and uncomfortable. And it puts you in such a horrible uncomfortable place and this happens sort of in the first act of the film and you're like my god like what is this film where is this film taking me um and so many of his moments his 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 horror moments are kind of these kind of fun thrill ride moments but this is one of the most like overtly uncomfortable horrific scenes he ever made and again we talked about it already but frenzy as an example of what he's like with no holds barred you know not really in his censorship he really doesn't pull any punches and it's it's like it's a it's a nasty film isn't it it really is and like you yeah. said it's so prolonged but it does it i think it still has those beats though yes yes it does and oh. there's no score right i seem to remember in that uh-huh. sequence too you know you might hear some traffic and because again it's happening in the middle of central london you in know, the middle so of the day some, yeah in the middle of the day in an office you know and it's like it's yeah really really disturbing Okay, uh, my number three is Lars Thorwald coming up the stairs in Rear Window. Oh, yeah, <laughs> nice. A bit of Lars. So so we've got, I guess, just the, the setup for this is as important, probably more important than the actual, the actual scene. But we've got Jeff alone now in the apartment, crucially. Telephone rings and he makes a slip up and he says, I think Thorwald's left. And then we've just got this beat and he says hello and then a loaded silence followed by a click. Oh. And then we so know it's good. on. Like from that moment, it is on. He knows, we know who was on the end of that line. Yeah. And then we hear a, a few seconds go by and then we hear a door closing close to Jeff's apartment. Mm-hmm. And then we hear steps. It's just this dread, this, this building dread. We know as well that Jeff can't get out of his wheelchair. So yeah. there's the added tension of him being like confined. Yeah. 
and then we see a light go on under the door. Oh, oh, it's so good, isn't it? And you're like, where is everyone else in this apartment block as well? Like, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, so it's so good, so beautifully orchestrated. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's my number three. What was your next one? Amazing sequence. Um, okay, so I've gone for a bit of a classic. Well, I've gone for a scene from Psycho, but I've gone for one that maybe is a little bit different to the ones we've mentioned so far. It's 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 just this moment when um when what's her name again the woman that dies it's janet lee but what's her character's name i keep forgetting marion marion it's the moment when marion arrives at the bates motel I think some of the most tense and scary stuff that happens in Psycho is actually when she's just driving. You know, those incredible sequences uh-huh. of her driving and all of the kind of inner monologues, the kind of the various scenarios playing out in her head of what might happen to her. She's already had to just evade some police and some other people. And she's had a kind she's had a pretty tense driving experience so far as it is. And Hitch slowly uses all of the elements to kind of crank up and crank up the suspense, like, and the feeling of dread. You mentioned dread in Rear Window. I think this is one of the absolute most palpable moments of dread um, that Hitchcock ever gave us, which is where, you know, it all of the kind of visibility slowly goes away. It's turned to night and the rain is lashing down on the windscreen. There is thunder and lightning. Um, the score is kind of, crescendoing and getting louder and more overt and Marion you can see this panic in Marion's face and she sort of pulls off the road suddenly and then there through the thunder and lightning you see this neon sign for the Bates Motel and it is almost like this kind of it's like traveling through a vortex into another world almost it's almost like this motel appeared out of nowhere you know like she was driving down this very kind of typical normal American road and then through that sudden thunderstorm, she can't see anything. We don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden she's pulled over and this this place has just appeared out of nowhere, this Bates Motel. And I've talked about it already with Psycho, but this is kind of the moment when the, the movie switches genres. We switch, you know, tone. It becomes a, a, a horror movie proper, soaked in thunder and lightning and a big house on a hill. Um, it's the it's sort of the moment when everything changes, when horror changes, really. And it's a really, really frightening moment, I think, that moment of just, like, the score, the production design, the rain, the noise, you know, Janet Lee's performance, all of that makes that moment, before anything has even happened yet, a really, really scary moment, I think. Yeah, you know that where she's going, bad things are going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the ultimate feeling of dread you get as she arrives at that motel, I think. It's not just like, la, 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 la. Oh, I think I'll stop here. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I'm going to die in this car unless something happens to me, right? You know, unless I stop somewhere right now. So, you know, it's brilliant. Really good. Yeah, and I like that you described it as being like almost going into another world because I I always read that scene as almost like a precursor to her being in the shower. So it's yeah. like this idea of her being in a contained environment with the rain, the water, and then her going into this other world. This is like being like, you know, this post post being alive state into this yeah. other world. It's Yeah, exactly. This is when everything becomes a little bit more weird and uncanny and the, the camera angles change 
you know it's it's you know we're in that room with the stuffed birds and everything and suddenly everything is just weird and off from this moment when she drives through the storm onwards right and it's like yeah it's almost like some sort of weird sci-fi or something like she's gone through <laughs> a, a portal or something you know yeah it's so good <laughs> so my turn for a preamble for my next one um <laughs> this is probably going to be quite odd for some people but had to be authentic and include it so this is um meeting Judy for the first time in Vertigo. So, so narratively, Scotty has assumedly done some healing and been released from hospital. We don't see that, but we know that time has passed. So what we do see is Scotty mistaking women left and right for Madeline. So in all their old haunts, in, in outside their apartment, at Ernie's, at the Palace yeah. of the Legion of Honour. So I really feel like Hitchcock's setting up this idea that he's not reliable. So what we see as him is not reliable which feeds in so beautifully into this moment where he first sees Judy and we look at her through his eyes and we question it and I think mm. it's it's that moment where she stands in profile which is when he first meets Madeline at Ernie is where something clicks yes. um, and for me there's just something so terribly uncanny and, and quite unsettling about this moment you know yeah. Her appearance, even it's just there's something very you you've you've said a few times, Mike. Off, there's just something mm. off about this, like, particularly when you watch it for the first time. Of course, like after mm. after that, you know. But this moment always stirs something in me that I don't yeah. even know if I can explain it. But it's just <laughs> it's totally Vertigo is. It, I actually found it hard to pick a single moment from Vertigo because that whole film is saturated in that uncanny mood, isn't it? It's like the film is so weird and you're right even at that moment when he's just like walking into a bar and seeing someone or whatever it's like there's something really off about this whole scenario and you don't quite know why yet right it's so good yeah okay Perfect. penultimate penultimate moment mike what have you yeah. got no, actually, oh yeah, so this is my number one, right? So yeah. my number one, uh, I, I kind of teased it earlier, but it's one of my favourite moments in all of Hitchcock's career. It is the climbing frame and the birds. Um, it's it's the it's the moment when shit really hits the fan, basically. So uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a good, like, probably a good hour into the movie, I think. And, you know, Tippi Hedren's character, she's on, she's on Bodega Bay. She's going to meet her friend, the teacher, who's inside... Uh, she's gone to pick up the, the little girl, I think, and they're just finishing a class and they're singing some songs. They're singing some sort of nursery rhyme. And so Tippy goes outside and sits on the bench and sort of lights up a cigarette and you can hear the the sounds outside uh, inside of the kind of the nursery rhyme being sung. And you can see in the background behind her, there is a climbing frame 
and a couple of crows are just like sat on the climbing frame. It just all looks very mundane and normal. And then like cut away to her face, you know, close up as she's looking around, cut back. And then there's suddenly like a couple more birds on that climbing frame. And Hitch kind of does this amazing thing where he will just like cut away, cut back, cut away, cut back. The nursery rhyme singing is kind of getting like seemingly getting louder and faster as well. This kind of really repetitive song Uh is going on in the background. And suddenly she starts to notice it. She kind of like she sees a few birds flying around above her. And then there's this moment when she looks at a, a couple of birds that are flying towards the playground and there's a kind of point of view shot from her almost as the camera tracks these birds flying through the air and landing on the climbing frame. And by that point, when they've landed, you see that this entire climbing frame is covered in like 200 birds <laughs> that are all sat there waiting, right? And Tippy's face, incredible. There's something Spielberg-y too about this, I think, because this kind of in- emphasis on her face when uh-huh. she reacts to the birds and stands up slowly and there's this realization that she has and we have that they're waiting like that they're waiting for the children to exit the school so that they can kill them attack them and kill them basically and it's masterfully directed it's so well paced it's such a scary image because again this brilliant thing where birds it's not a creature feature in the way that it's not about like deadly spiders or snakes or you know m- alligators or creatures <laughs> that we 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 think of as being dangerous and hostile birds are something that we see every day all around us and you know mm-hmm. you see a couple of birds and that's fine you see a few more and that might be a bit weird but then you see that many on mass and there's <laughs> something truly terrifying about it so again i think hitch tapped into something really real and relatable um about using birds you know to create this danger and um that sequence is just such a perfect encapsulation of just like the everydayness of it that then turns into an absolute nightmare doesn't it it's so good oh, yeah yeah and, and to this day like if we're, if we're we're out and there's a flock of birds i will hear people say it's like alfred hitchcock's the birds yeah so yeah. it's it's entered into the the, the kind of lexicon <laughs> it really has like i can't not think about it when i see flocks of birds everywhere <laughs> it's so true and and also that's that's the moment of suspense and then it really does pay off because then they're like shit let's get the children to safety don't panic them la 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 and they're like come on run and then you get this full on attack and how often do you actually see children being Mm -hmm. violently attacked because we actually see like children getting pecked in the face and eyes and stuff and it's like it's really brutal so that moment of suspense is then also paid off with some pretty extreme horror too it's so so good yeah and and that extreme horror mike is is my number one so amazing (laughs) oh my god so you've kind of continued chronologically on from my sequence amazing (laughs) So yeah, I think as we've just said, it's the children, the vulnerability of them. We've seen the birds gather already. Mm. There's that moment of sublime stillness, and the flock just erupts and fills the sky. Oh. There's the screaming, the spectacle of it. You know, yeah. the fact that they're out in the open and they're so exposed as well. All they can do is run. Yeah. <laughs> That's all they can do. Yeah. You know, and I think Hitchcock, I noticed as well, has these shots that are just of the birds coming down. So it almost made me feel like, and I feel like I've said this a few times, but as though they're attacking us. Yes, yes, (laughs) absolutely. No, it's something really visceral about it. I screened the film um, recently in Brighton, in the Duke of York Cinema in Brighton, which was so fun because obviously Brighton is very much a seaside town filled with seagulls, which is great. And there was something about seeing it on the big screen too that 
you do almost recoil backwards into your seat. It's like an attack, like, like the way in which Hitchcock cuts and edits those scenes and has birds like flying at us. And it's it's kind of hard to see what's going on. It's like this, it's this like mass panic, right? And lots of quick cuts and lots of birds flapping about and you see bits of blood and feathers and like you- and you're, Glasses, you're sort of, like the smashed glasses. glasses. Yeah. You're sort of piecing it together in your head in amidst the chaos. And it is true, true horror, isn't it? It's so good. Mm. Wow. Well, there we go. Um, he didn't stick to the rules, but he gave us five good moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry about that. So before we wrap up then, Mike, I've just got a few listener questions. So a few quick fires. So mm. if you could play hide and seek in one Hitchcock house, which would you choose? <gasps> oh, I mean, it would obviously be Mandalay, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, like Mandalay, so. what a house incredible it's such a cliche to say it but that house is as much a character as any other character in that film and i absolutely love it and i would want to be the new mr winter and just run around that house exploring (laughs) i think (laughs) what about you you could be mike de winter exactly exactly that's fine i don't care i'll dress up as the previous dead woman and and flounce (laughs) about i think i think i'd have a lovely time but anyway (laughs) yeah it's got to be mandalay i think hasn't it Yeah, Yeah. yeah yeah So who in Hitchcock's films is the villain or character that scares you most of all? Oh, that's a really good one, actually, because I think once upon a time, it might have been somebody like Norman Bates. But now, because he's he's scared, like that moment at the end of Psycho used to really scare me as a kid when he right. yeah. the skeleton turns round and then he comes in dressed as the mother and he's kind of looking really crazed. That moment used to really freak me out when I was a kid. But I think, like like I talked about, the way in which kind of sometimes the the sort of ideas of Hitchcock films seep into me more as I get older. There's something I would say about Brandon from Rope that I actually think mm-hmm. is one of the scariest villains Hitchcock ever created, you know, because he's so, there is no feeling there. Like there's nothing behind the eyes almost. Like he is just so much enjoying everything he's doing and causing this pain um, that I think maybe he now might for me be the yeah. scariest villain. Yeah. Um, what yeah. About you? Yeah. I think for me, like Mrs. Danvers was someone yeah. as a child that terrified me, but you know, as I've got older, I'm actually quite sympathetic to her now. Um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sort of with her, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for me, Brandon's definitely up there. Um, mm. Elster in, in Vertigo is someone who I find really disturbing. I know we don't get much time with him, but I think actually mm. the fact that we don't, it just, you know, just thinking about what Judy must have went through and how, you know, he must have, you know... Yeah, just coached her and just the yeah. disregard it's chilling but yeah. yeah Bob Rusk of Frenzy maybe because he as well yes. is quite hard to understand like what's his reasoning what's his motivation and he's also got that charisma that you mentioned as well yes absolutely he's the other one right he's the runner-up where a bit, a bit like Brand- <laughs> a bit like Brandon where there is this charisma matched with this absolute cold you know just viciousness yeah it's horrible yeah yeah really good so we've got Brandon taking first prize and, and Bob Ross gets the uh, the winner at Rosette. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So which filmmaker working today, apart from Brian De Palma, do you think is most closely following in Hitch's footsteps? Mm, that's a really hard question. 
for a while I would have said M. Night Shyamalan actually like I remember when M. Night Shyamalan first kind of arrived on the scene and everyone said this is the next Alfred Hitchcock um, because he's kind of the way in which he kind of manipulates us uh, his mysteries his suspense I think he's got a really good eye for that kind of thing sadly he's not a very good um, he's not very good at scripts some of his films have kind of fallen down in terms of the story and the twists and all of that kind of thing but I think he's one of them and another one that I've been thinking about might be Jordan Peele as well. I think that mm-hmm. Jordan Peele has got this amazing balance of smart, meaty, subtextual movies that are also really, really fun popcorn movies on the surface, right? That are that are both crowd pleasers and critical darlings as well. Like, and he he has there's just so much technique behind the camera in his choices of music in the information that he reveals to us about what's going on so much control in tone where he will flip from really funny to really tense he will give us these kind of intriguing mysteries where we don't quite know what's gonna happen um and then he hits us with really really scary moments as well so i think that jordan peele for me now might be sort of for me my next kind of hitchcock um yeah what about you yeah, I think for me, Gomero del Toro would be the one that first comes to mind. It's, mm. I mean, Crimson Peak is so much of Rebecca. And then yeah. there's just so many moments in his films where I can see the influence. But um, I think, like you say, it's hard to, to, to pin someone specifically. But I think to follow in Hitchcock's footsteps, right, it doesn't necessarily mean, well, for me, it doesn't mean that they're imitating him or doing no. these homages. It just means to be experimental, to be innovative and to be telling story through the visual image. Yeah, exactly. And in that regard, I would also say David Lynch. But David Lynch is so old now that I don't know if it kind of counts as like a current filmmaker. But obviously Blue Velvet 1986 is is just pure. Mulholland Drive, is, Mulholland Vertigo, Drive is, yeah. is basically Vertigo. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like all of that idea of voyeurism of peeping through the curtain and seeing what people's you know weird fucked up lives are really like is that's pure hitchcock and that's pure lynch isn't it so yeah, yeah. so very quickly i asked listeners to tell me their top horror moments and mike i just want you to rate these out of five. Oh, so good. okay one being the least scary for you five being the most okay, okay. okay. so leading alicia out of the house at the end of notorious have you seen notorious i have i have yes that's good that is (laughs) that is a tense moment because it's filled with so much menace isn't it i would say a four for that one a strong four okay yeah yeah the strangulation attempt of margot in dial in for murder say that's a three do you know what like that that film is Weird, isn't it? Because that scene should be more horrific in a way than, than you know, a woman being led down the stairs and out of a house. But it is, I don't know, there's something about that film that plays it a little bit safe for me. And it's actually yeah. less kind of uh, horrific in a way. So I'd, I'd give that one a, a medium three. Yeah, A medium three. Okay. Yeah. This this better be a five. The shower scene in Psycho. Ah, uh, that's a five. That's a five. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Mother coming out of the room shot from above in Psycho. That is actually a scarier moment to me. So uh-huh. you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll maybe I'll drop shower down to four point five, <laughs> and I'll give that one a five because that one is truly terrifying. Yeah, yeah. The discovery of mother by Lila in Psycho. Incredible. That's that's definitely a, a 
bore, I would say, only because maybe these days the skeleton itself looks quite funny in the dress. Um, but like, actually, again, the idea of it, followed by that moment when Norman comes in in the dress is really scary. Yeah. The death of Arbogast in Psycho. Yeah, I mean, five. That's a five. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. The moment where Lydia visits the neighbour in the beds and the eyes are gorged out. Oh, five. Five. I can't believe we didn't even mention no. that scene <laughs> at any point in this. Because again, that's like, you don't get a whole lot of gore in Hitchcock. You know, that's that's something that uh-huh. we haven't really talked about. We don't yeah. really get much blood and gore. But that moment of seeing that dead man with his eyes fully pecked out of their sockets, bleeding, is that's that is visceral horror like we'd never seen before from Hitchcock. So good. Yeah, and the cutting, like the editing, that's like, yeah, yeah closer, closer, closer. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Okay, the death of Brenda in Frenzy. Oh my God, five. Yeah, horrible, horrible. And then finally, the death of Babs in Frenzy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, five. I mean, any of those murder scenes in Frenzy. They're just all fives across they're the They're fives book. for me, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, um... Usually I would use space at the end here uh, to recommend some resources. But mm. today, all I want to do is recommend that you head over to Mike's amazing podcast, The Evolution of Horror, and check out all of his horror content, his Hitchcock content, of course. And um, thank you so much to my wonderful guest, Mike Munzer. It's been such a pleasure to talk Hitchcock with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute treat to talk about these brilliant <laughs> movies with you. So where can people find you and your podcast online, Mike? And is there anything that you've got coming up that you'd like to share with my listeners? Uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can find my podcast, The Evolution of Horror, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on all the socials as well on, you know, millions of them now, Twitter, Threads, (laughs) Blue Sky, Instagram, Facebook. Um, Yeah, so come and check us out. There's loads and loads of Hitchcock content on there, amongst many other things. If you're in the UK, we're always doing events around the UK as well. We've got loads coming up in October. In fact, Rebecca, you're going to be joining us for a screening in Liverpool, right? That's going to be happening in October. But we're coming to Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, Newcastle, Reading, Oxford, loads of places. So any information about podcasts or screening events or anything else uh, you can find on our website, evolutionofhorror.com. Thanks so much. And thank you to everyone for joining me today. It's time to leave the bar of my screening room. But don't fret, you can find Talking Hitchcock on Twitter at Hitch underscore pod and Instagram at Talking Hitch pod. So if you like what you hear, please consider supporting the pod by giving us a follow. What are your thoughts then on Hitchcock and Horror and our discussion here today? If there's anything you'd like to share, you can reach us on talkandhitchpods at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this, please tell a friend and help us to spread the word. I've been your host, Rebecca. You can find me in my work, including my series of essays on Hitchcock's Women with Moving Pictures Film Club. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Pendle Pumpkin. Thanks for being here with me. I look forward to seeing you back in the screening room soon. But until next time, stay curious and keep talking Hitchcock.